Hello and welcome to another Pilates Elephants. Today is a little bit of a different episode. We're actually recording this live uh, and we are going to have a discussion about diastasis and Pilates. So uh, the format is going to be, I will, uh, I've got a little bit of a a few things I want to talk about, <laughs> about diastasis. I'd love to know, for those of you uh, in live attendance, I'd love to know uh, what you want to talk about. Uh, I believe you can pop a question into the chat. Uh, I'd love to have your uh, questions. I'd also like to know, like, what is it about uh, working with clients with diastasis that uh, – you would like to know more about, like if you, if a client, if you have a client with diastasis, uh, you know, what part of, what part of that, uh, do you need help with, or would you like to explore more? Would you like to discuss or share your experiences on? So pop that in the chat and I will hopefully figure out a way to, <laughs> to see those chats. Uh, I think I've, think I've figured it out. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm going to roll with uh, some things that have been on my mind uh, about diastasis and exercise. So firstly, uh, I guess really what I want to, uh, the, the real kind of theme that I want to discuss today uh, is that Abdominal exercises, including planks and abdominal curls, are perfectly safe and, in fact, beneficial for women uh, with diastasis or women uh, who are pregnant um, who are at risk of diastasis. Uh, so ab curls and ab exercise in general, including planks, are safe. So firstly, I uh, want to talk about what diastasis is. So diastasis means a separation, uh, and the actual technical term for diastasis is diastasis recti abdominis, and recti abdominis are just the, the left and the right halves of your rectus abdominis. So rectus is actually a singular, and recti is the plural, uh, and means straight. So the, the left and the right halves of your rectus abdominis muscle, the six-pack muscle, um, there's a left and a right half. That's why you've got a six-pack instead of a three-pack. Uh, and the fact that there's a left and a right half um, means that there's an there's some non-zero distance between the left and the right halves. And the space in between the left and the right halves of that muscle is called your linear alba, which means the white line. And that's because uh, when we peel off the skin and the underlying body fat, uh, what we see is um, a white line of essentially tendon fascia, tendon, uh, in between those left and the right halves of the rectus abdominis. And so in diastasis recti abdominis, or some people call it just abdominal separation, um, some people call it DRAM, D-R-A-M, diastasis of the rectus abdominis muscle. Um, I'm just going to call it diastasis. In diastasis, what happens is the linear alba stretches. So it doesn't break, it doesn't Tear. It doesn't. Uh, there's no hole or gap, uh, but it it stretches, and so those two halves of the rectus muscle separate, which is what you know they move further apart. But um, I think uh, it's easy to misconstrue what separate means in this context and think about like separation as in like they tear. But it, there's no tearing in diastasis. It's it's a stretching. All right. So in uh, Di in diastasis, that's what diastasis is, is the two halves of the rectus abdominis muscle uh, move further apart because the linear alba stretches. Uh, and it's like pretty common in pregnancy. Um, there is, there's um, some studies showing, uh, finding that it um, it's up to 100% of women have diastasis uh, by, the, by full term. However, uh, we actually don't know the prevalence of diastasis uh, because there are so many different methods that we use 
to measure it. Um, so, for example, when we're measuring di- diastasis, you might have heard of it measured as like a finger width, you know, two fingers or three fingers, or whatever. Well, this is inherently a problem because people have different width fingers. Uh, and the width of someone's finger can vary by a lot. So I actually went to the trouble of measuring the, the width of my fingers. My fingers, my my index and middle finger are about 1.5 centimeters in diameter, in in width diameter. My wife's fingers are one centimeter. So that is a 50% difference, right? So that's a massive error. So if my wife was diagnosing someone's diastasis, she would find a six finger dif- diastasis where I would find a four finger diastasis, right? So there's a very big difference. Um, or she would find a three finger diastasis where I'd find a two finger diastasis. So, so f- what we find in the literature is finger measurement is highly inaccurate and basically not worth anything. Uh, and unfortunately, for reasons unknown, a lot of studies that look at diastasis they actually measure the diastasis by using finger measurement, which is unfathomable to me, considering that calipers are very cheap and very accurate. Um, so I don't know why people don't use calipers, um, but sometimes they often they use um, finger measurement. So uh, then the, even the people who do use calipers or ultrasound to measure diastasis in these studies, sometimes they, they measure it uh, at the umbilicus, you know, at the, at the belly button. Sometimes they measure it, you know, three centimeters above the belly button or two centimeters below the belly button or four centimeters above the belly button. Uh, and what we find is that diastasis is not the same width the whole, you know, for the whole uh, length of the linear elbow. So if you measure it above the belly button or below the belly button, it's you're going to get a different measurement, right? So in all of these studies, we find people measure it at different places along the linear elbow. So it's like, well, you can't find like, quote, the average of those. So we don't, we can't really say what the the normal, quote, width of the linear elbow is. The third thing is sometimes some of these studies measure it when the person is sitting or standing or lying supine, relaxed or lying supine with their head lifted. So the abdominals are contracted or in a curl up position. Right? So we're measuring the diastasis in all of these different positions. Now, obviously, if you're standing or sitting or lying, there's different amounts of pressure within the abdomen. Right, so there's different amounts of pressure on that tissue, which is going to stretch it more or less. And when you contract the abdominals, that's going to change the distance between those muscles as well. So, if we have, you know, a study where someone measured the the interrectal distance, the distance between the left and the half, left and the right half of the rectus, in supine with the head lifted, and another study that measured it in sitting with the abdominals relaxed, it's like, well, we can't really compare those two studies and say what's the average distance of diastasis. So all that goes to say that we actually don't know how common diastasis is because we can't even agree on what the definition of diastasis is because you know we don't know what the quote normal, you know, we don't know what the normal range of width of the linear alba is, right? Because of all of those different ways of measuring it. So um and the 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 definitions vary between like two centimeters and like three and a half or four centimeters, which is a very it's like a hundred percent variation, which is essentially means we don't really know what what we what we're talking about here. So we don't really know uh, how how prevalent diastasis is, uh, and we can't really define you know diastasis is more than this number of millimeters of separation. Well, there are there are a bunch of definitions like that, but they vary quite a bit. Um, yeah. So um, now there's you know the the myth that I want to talk about, or the Pilates elephant that I want to talk about, is that ab curls in particular, or planks, um, are dangerous. I've heard rotation as well. Uh, Rotational exercises are dangerous for women with diastasis and can uh, increase the risk of uh, getting diastasis or make diastasis worse or prolong recovery from diastasis. Um, And this is not true. So uh, we thought, you know, we th- we thought it was true. I thought it was true um, because uh, it kind of makes sense intuitively when you think that, all right, well, the diastasis is a stretching of the linear alba, 
okay, that central part of the, the rectus abdominis sheath, you know, the, the tendon in the aponeurosis is the technical term of the rectus abdominis, where there's an increased pressure inside the abdomen in this instance because of pregnancy, but it can also be because of abdominal obesity or other things like um, there are other you know, things that can contribute to diastasis. But basically anything that increases pressure inside the abdomen is going to uh, contribute or increase the risk of uh, th- that linear elbow stretching. So if there's increased pressure and that's causing linear elbow to stretch, well, we'll probably want to decrease the pressure, right? That kind of intuitively makes sense. If we decrease the pressure, uh, you know, decrease the the load, the tension on that linear elbow, that will, you know, uh, alleviate some of that risk. And so that's why I think uh, a lot of people think that uh, diastasis is, you know, we, we in diast- for women with diastasis or at risk of diastasis, we should afo- avoid abdominal exercise, particularly abdominal curls. Uh, and there's, you know, particularly uh, in the case of um, doming, right? And so uh, you may have heard of this, you probably have if you teach Pilates, that when uh, someone does a curl up, like just a, basically like an ab curl or a hundred or a roll up or whatever, um, as the rectus abdominis contracts, um, sometimes if they have a diastasis, sometimes there can be a little bulge that forms along the midline, okay, along, along that lydia alba, uh, and you know, so the the abdomen, the abdominal wall essentially bulges out, and that's called doming. Uh, and so the that is thought to be caused by an increase in pressure inside the abdomen as you contract those muscles. Uh, and then that you know pushes outwards on the linear elbow and stretches it further. Now, and that does kind of sound plausible. Uh, however, <laughs> there are two reasons why this is not should not be why we should take that with a grain of salt, or two I think reasons why I'd like to challenge that the notion that doming is necessarily a bad sign. Firstly, is that there is literally no research on doming. So if you go to Google Scholar and type in diastasis, protrusion, bulge, doming, distension, distend, distended, uh, there is literally zero result, like not one single (laughs) article. So this is a topic that has not been researched. Um, And we also know counterintuitively uh, from studies in people who don't have diastasis that pressure within this is actually uh, on studies for people with urinary incontinence where we're looking at um, stress urinary incontinence so people who who uh, urinate uncontrollably when they have increased pressure inside the abdomen. So we're looking at intra-abdominal pressure during a during various exercises. And one of the exercises uh, that researchers have looked at in regards to this is the curl-up. What they found was, surprisingly, that th- with repeated curl-ups, pressure inside the abdomen actually decreases as you do more curl-ups. It decreases pressure inside the abdomen. Now, I not quite clear on the biomechanics of how that works, but that is what uh, researchers have found. Um, and I will link to the study in the show notes of uh, the recording. So actually curling up doesn't increase the the, the pressure inside the abdomen. Uh, and the final little thing here is that um, we know that about 36% of women, about a third of women with diastasis, have an umbilical hernia, which is where there is actually, so a hernia is different to a diastasis in that in a hernia, there is actually a hole that forms in that linear elbow. Okay, so uh, whereas in diastasis, it's just a stretching of the linear elbow. Uh, So that's like over a third of women with diastasis have this um, umbilical hernia, which is a midline hernia. And so it could well be that doming is just an... Um, a result or an indicator of someone having an, an, a, a midline hernia in addition to their diastasis. So maybe doming is not an indicator of necessarily increased 
pressure or increased stress on the uh, linear alba. It's rather just what happens when you've got a hernia in addition to having diastasis. So we don't really know because, like I said, there is literally zero research on doming uh, under any name. So yeah, we did think we did think that those exercises, you know, place a lot of stress on the linear alba, but it, you know, when we think about it, just kind of like logically, okay. Well, the the linear alba is fascia, which is basically it's a tendon. Okay, it's it's the abdominal hyponeurosis, which is the tendon. It's basically the tendon of all of the abdominal muscles. So your internal and external obliques, the transversus and the rectus abdominis. It's the tendon of all of those muscles. Uh, and as such, you know, like all sort of tendons in the body, it is living tissue. Uh, you know, it's comprised of uh, primarily um, collagen fibers with a bit of elastin. In there, both of these are proteins, and then housed within those proteins are within that matrix of proteins are cells, essentially tenocytes they're called, and they those cells secrete the collagen, the elastin. So it's living tissue, and as such, it adapts to stress that is placed upon it. Right, so if you, it's a tendon, uh, just like your Achilles tendon in your calf is a tendon, like your biceps tendon is a tendon. Uh, and when, when we're dealing with tendons in cases of, you know, tendonitis or tendinopathy or tendon rupture or tendon surgery, um, there is a well established, um, relationship or mechanism of how we can increase the stiffness of tendons. In fact, increasing tendon stiffness is a goal, a primary goal in a lot of athletic strength and conditioning because stiff tendons, stiffer tendons contribute to greater athletic performance. You get more explosive power, more strength, more speed when you have stiffer tendons. So uh, there's a lot of athletic training that actually is designed to increase tendon stiffness. I'm thinking about things like plyometrics here where you're basically jumping or bounding or power training where you're doing you know explosive movements with kind of light to moderate weights. So And also very heavy strength training increases tendon stiffness. Now, if your linear alba is a tendon and if it is stretched, okay, which is to say it has a decrease in stiffness, it's become more stretchable, okay, than usual. If we wanted to increase the stiffness of that living tissue, there's a well-documented way to do that, and that is apply heavy loads to that tissue, and the tissue will respond and adapt by becoming stiffer. So, you know, it kind of, although it intuitively makes sense that it's okay, the linear alba is stretched, therefore we want to offload it, okay, actually, it we, that's that logic kind of doesn't pan out, and think about how we would how we would rehab any other tendon. So if you ruptured your Achilles tendon or if you uh, you know, had a tendonitis or tendinopathy in your patella tendon or whatever, like the exercise prescription would be progressively build load and apply load to that tendon up to a very high level of load in order to increase the stiffness and the structural integrity and the alignment and the organization of the collagen fibers within that tendon. Right. So uh, why... Why would it be the opposite? <laughs> Why would it be the opposite in the linear alba? Um, so you know, so I think just the logic doesn't, you know, doesn't stand up. Um, plus, there is uh, quite a lot of science, um, or albeit pretty low quality science. Uh, there is quite a lot of science on what happens to the linear alba during and after uh, abdominal exercises, and it all shows the opposite. So uh, let's just think about that for a moment. Well, let's take a little, you know, um, tour through some of the science. So we have a bunch of uh, ultrasound studies uh, where they basically get a a woman with 
diastasis. They lie her on her back. They get a real-time ultrasound machine. They put some gel on her belly and put the ultrasound on her uh, linear alba and measure the distance between the left and the right half of the linear alba by ultrasound, which is a very accurate measure. And they measure it when she's relaxed, okay, just lying on her back, relaxed belly, relaxed breathing. And then they get her to curl up, you know, basically just lift you know, hands behind the head, lift the head and shoulders off the mat, okay, and then hold that. And then they measure the distance between the left and the right half of the rectus abdominis, or in other words, the diastasis width at the top of the curl up. And what these studies consistently find is that during a curl up, the interrecti distance gets smaller. Yes, the left and the right halves of the rectus abdominis get closer or the diastasis decreases during a curl up. This this science is not low quality. This science is high quality, right? So this is these are controlled lab studies with uh, real-time ultrasound measurement. Um, blinded assessors, uh, it's very clear that uh, the diastasis decreases during contraction of the rectus abdominis muscle. Uh, Now, this kind of, you know, was surprising to me when I first learned it, but, you know, when you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense. So let me see if I can paint a picture here for you with my words. If you picture the rectus abdominis muscle, the the left and the right halves, okay, you've got, you know, your three-pack on the left and your three-pack on the right, and then kind of a straight set of fibers down at the very lower abdomen, okay, that go kind of from below the belly button to the pubis. Now, picture those kind of separating or bulging out to the sides. So now it's not a you know, it's not like the normal six pack that you would see. It's kind of, there's kind of a, a empty kind of pear shaped space in the middle where the linear elbow is stretched wider. Okay. So it's, 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 it's now pear shaped. Okay. It's not a straight line anymore. It's pear shaped. Well, those left and the right halves of the rectus abdominis, right? They are now curved, right? They curve, they start at the, at the xiphoid at the top of the, top of the, um, or the bottom of the rib cage there, actually they go up to the fifth rib, but they, let's say they start at the xiphoid where they're narrow, okay, and then they kind of bulge outwards to the sides around about where the umbilicus is or a bit above or a bit below it, and then they come together again at the symphysis pubis, at the pubic bone, okay? So the top and bottom of those muscles, they are almost touching each other, but in the middle, there's a separation, okay? So the shape of each half is a curve, right? It curves outwards from the top to the middle and then inwards from the middle to the bottom. Whereas when you curl up, okay, when you contract that muscle, to contract mean literally means to shorten. So when you contract the rectus abdominis, it shortens. In fact, that's the only thing that muscles can do is contract, okay? Uh, and so what that means is it literally shortens. And I, I'm pretty sure you probably remember, dear listener, from I think it's probably like grade seven science class or something like that, that the shortest distance between any two points is a straight line, right? The shortest distance between any two points is a straight line. And you can try this yourself. If you have a piece of string or some kind of, like I've got a a cable for my iPhone charger here, if you pull it straight, guess what happens? It goes straight, right? It's in the name, right? So if you pull on it and increase the tension on it, guess what? It goes straight, right? When you reduce the tension on it, it can curve, okay? And that is exactly what happens with your rectus abdominis. As you increase the tension on it and make it shorter, it actually becomes straight. So it, instead of bulging outwards, when you contract it, it actually pulls in towards the center so that the fibers are vertical instead of curved outward. It's no longer a pear shape. It's rectus, the straight, you know, rectus means straight, the straight muscle of the abdomen. So literally when you contract the muscle, it actually pulls straight. Okay. So 
That is why we find when we do these ultrasound studies that the rex abdominis actually draws together as we curl up, right? It doesn't actually increase the stress on the linear alba. It decreases the stress on the linear alba during a curl up because the two halves of the rectus draw together and that linear alba is not stretched. It goes slack. It goes flaccid during a curl up. So we know that for sure. There's lots of good quality evidence on that. Uh, and what we find uh, in a, you know, interestingly, in a transversus abdominis contraction, okay, is the opposite. Because think about the fibers of the transversus abdominis, it run, they run horizontally, right? They, the fibers run from the linear alba around the sides of the torso and to the back to the thoracolumbar fascia on the back of the, of the torso. And so those fibers pull horizontally, so they pull the linear alba apart. And so during an isolated contraction of transverse abdominis, when we apply an ultrasound machine to the linear alba, what we find is that the, the linear alba widens. And we have, again, multiple good quality studies showing this exact thing. So it's uncontroversial amongst researchers to say that during an isolated contraction of transverse abdominis, the diastasis widens. Uh, now, when you contract transverse abdominis and the rectus abdominis, we end up with the diastasis staying about the same because they kind of cancel each other out. So the rectus abdominis pulls it together, the transverse abdominis pulls it apart. When you contract both of them, it stays about the same. So that now, that this is not like what happens when you do repeated exercises, just like in the moment of contracting this muscle. Um, what we find, though, when we uh, do intervention studies is, well, firstly, is that the studies are very low quality. Now, I'm not sure why this is the case, uh, but all of the studies that are available, there are probably 15 or 20 studies looking at um, women who do ab exercises during and after pregnancy versus women who don't do ab exercises during and after pregnancy and looking at specific types of exercise, curl-ups versus leg raises versus planks, et cetera, um, and then measuring the diastasis and seeing what's the relationship between the type of exercise they do uh, and how long they did it for and where, how long the diastasis uh, you know, takes to go away and how wide the diastasis is. For some reason, all of these studies are very low quality. When I say low quality, I mean they, they only have eight participants in the study, or they measured diastasis with by finger palpation, or they didn't document which exercises they did, <laughs> or like just or they they didn't have a control group, right? Like it's a very sloppy. <laughs> Uh, not random, no random allocation of the people in study. So they basically just got the first eight women that came into the waiting room and said, "Will you, will you be in a study?" So, um, so the the research we have is is very low quality. Uh, it's poorly designed, poorly conducted, uh, and it is very possible that future research will find something different. Uh, however. Um, every single one of the studies that we have um, shows either no effect of exercise on diastasis over time or a narrowing of the diastasis over time as a result of exercise. There is no single study of any form of abdominal exercise, including curl-ups, including planks, including transversus activation, there is not a single study showing any negative effect on diastasis from abdominal exercises. Zip. Zero. Nada. Zilch. None. There's a blank page. There are no studies showing ab exercises make diastasis worse in any form. In fact, there was a 2021 systematic review with meta-analysis by Glup et al. called What is the Evidence for Abdominal and Pelvic Floor Muscle Training to Treat Diastasis Recti Abdominis Postpartum, a Systematic Review with Meta-Analysis. And they found 
quote, there is low evidence that curl-up training is more effective than minimal intervention for treating diastasis recti abdominis, end quote. Low evidence that curl-up training is more effective than minimal intervention for treating diastasis. So not only does curl-up training not cause diastasis, we have low-quality evidence that it actually is helpful in treating diastasis. So, uh, And they also found uh, the same for transverse abdominis training. The results provided, quote, were very low quality of evidence that transverse abdominis training reduced interrecti distance, end quote. So both curl-ups and transverse abdominis training have been shown, albeit with low quality of evidence, to reduce diastasis. Uh, and in fact, guidelines from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommend abdominal strengthening during and after pregnancy. Uh, and this is from the ACOG guidelines, uh, current ACOG guidelines, 2020, uh, physical activity and exercise during pregnancy in the postpartum period, uh, page 185, quote, abdominal strengthening exercises, including abdominal crunch exercises and the drawing in exercises, have been shown to decrease the incidence of diastasis recti abdominis and decrease the interrectus distance in women who gave birth vaginally or by cesarean birth, end quote. So it's uh, certainly, you know, low quality evidence. Stay, you know, watch this space. It may change over time. But given that we've got 20 plus studies looking at this and not a single one has shown any adverse effect, it's unlikely that that's going to change. What might change over time is we find that there's no benefit. It's just a neutral effect. We find that maybe there is, you know, certain exercises are a bit better than others. Um, you know, but it's unlikely to reverse, uh, in my view. Uh, now, so essentially, uh, that is what I wanted to say, which is that we thought diastasis, uh, was, you know, worsened or increasing, you know, ab exercises increased the risk of it. Uh, it turns out that's not the case because diastasis is a stretching of the linear alba and actually, we don't want to decrease the tension on the linear elbow. We want to load the linear elbow uh, to increase the stiffness. Uh, we know that during a curl up, the linear elbow narrows, uh, and we know that long term ab exercise. We don't know, but we it seems likely based on the research that long term ab exercises, both during and after pregnancy, uh, decrease the size and the duration of diastasis. Uh, and we also know just from logic that the shortest dis distance between any two points is a straight line. So when the rectus abdominis contracts, it actually narrows the diastasis. Uh, the linear elbow is living tissue, but responds to load. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, that is uh, what I wanted to say in relation to diastasis. Don't fear ab exercises. In fact, by giving your clients with diastasis planks, transversus abdominis training and curl-ups, you are very likely, or I would say likely, um, going to improve their chance of recovering from diastasis quickly postpartum. So I would definitely include uh, ab exercises, including curl-ups and planks for all pregnant women without um, you know, significant medical contraindications. Uh, and that is enshrined in the current ACOG guidelines. Right, so that's what I have to say. Don't fear the don't fear the ab exercise. Right, I've got a bunch of questions here. Uh, great to see uh, everybody on on the call. Thanks so much for popping your questions in. Okay, from Michelle, I see older men with the pop of what looks like diastasis recti. The literature is all about pregnant women, so checking to see if you've seen this same account. Suggestions for having them check with their doctors because once men research it. But all they say is just women has it. Uh, no, definitely diastasis recti abdominis occurs in men. It's more common in women uh, because women get pregnant. Um, but basically anything that increases intra-abdominal pressure uh, in, you know, predisposes people, men and women, to diastasis. So men are much more prone to abdominal obesity than women. So that's where you have a lot of fat inside the abdominal wall. So not belly fat on the front of, you know, like in front of the six pack, but inside with the viscera, with the organs. And that, you know, pushes outwards on the abdominal wall. So uh, it's, uh, I wouldn't say common, but it, you know, it, it does occur in men who have abdominal obesity uh, to have, they have a diastasis. 
Also, there are multiple uh, genetic factors that uh, seem to predispose people to diastasis, both men and women. Uh, so one is an, an alteration in the collagen content within our tendons and fascia and, and uh, ligaments. And so people who are hypermobile uh, tend to have uh, less type 3 collagen and a slightly higher proportion of elastin fibers within their tendons, uh, which makes the tendons more elastic, more stretchable. Um, and uh, that, you know, people who have this sort of genetic variation are more likely to have diastasis. And that kind of makes sense if your tendons, in, of which the abdomen, you know, the linear elbow is a tendon, uh, are more stretchable. Well, it kind of makes sense that if there's more pressure in the abdomen, it's more likely to stretch if it's more stretchable. So that's one thing, it's a genetic variation. Another one is uh, there is one study which found that um, people with diastasis, uh, and this looked at women, but I don't see why it wouldn't apply to men as well, uh, have a lack the posterior insertion of the internal oblique muscle into the rectus sheath. So it's kind of technical and I'm not going to spend 10 minutes trying to paint a picture with my words of how that works, but the internal oblique muscle inserts into the abdominal aponeurosis, essentially into the linear elbow. Uh, and it's been found that there's a, 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 you know, a some significant fraction of women with diastasis don't have an internal oblique insertion into the rectus sheath. So that you know might be another genetic factor that predisposes people to diastasis, including men. The other things that I'm aware of in terms of risk factors are number of pregnancies a woman's had. Obviously, that's only relevant to uh, women. And I think smoking is also a risk factor. So it definitely is something that uh, is possible for men. Uh, anything that increases intra-abdominal pressure. So even um, you know, people who do like, for instance, Olympic weightlifting or powerlifting or those types of things, uh, that increases intra-abdominal pressure. Um, I'm not aware of studies that look at diastasis in those sports. I don't know if there's an increased incidence within those sports because the other thing is you're increasing intra-abdominal pressure when you're doing weightlifting, but you're also increasing abdominal strength. Right, so they're increasing the pressure, but maybe they're just also just strengthening the tendons, and so maybe they don't have an, an increased incidence in those sports. So I'm just speculating here, but yes, definitely, it's a thing that happens for men. It's a real thing, uh, and men can have it too. Uh, Susan says, "Is it a case of managing the pressure through breathing exercises? I teach men Pilates, and it's very common. I've read that curl up, pulling navel in doesn't decrease interrectal distance, and yet not doing it does. Is this the case? Well, I've kind of already covered the second part. Um, so when you when you pulling the navel in, so when you curl up, it decreases interrectal distance. When you pull the navel in, it increases the interrectal distance. When you do both, it kind of." neither increases nor decreases the interrectal distance. Uh, now, having said that, like I, like I said a moment ago in the research, we find that pulling pulling navel in or transverse activation is beneficial, right? So we shouldn't avoid it. Curling up is beneficial also, so we shouldn't avoid that. So the, I think the, the take-home message there is all abdominal exercises are safe and beneficial. Uh, is it a case of managing the pressure through breathing exercises? Now, I don't know. So I'm going into speculation here, right? So this is just my personal interpretation. Um, I'm not. I'm not convinced that we want to reduce pressure within the abdomen for people with diastasis. Uh, you know, because of the evidence that we have. Well, firstly, just because of the basic. You know, physiology that in order to, you know, a diastasis is a uh, increased laxity of the linear elbow. Okay. And so in order to decrease, you know, to decrease the diastasis, we want to increase the, the stiffness of the linear elbow. And we know in physiology, the way to increase the stiffness of a tendon is to apply load to that tendon over time progressively. Right. So I'm not convinced that we want to manage abdominal pressure in order to decrease load on the tendon, right? I, I think there's a, a pretty good first principles case that we actually want to increase load on the tendon in order to increase the stiffness of the linear elbow. Now, we don't have any direct evidence of that in uh, the 
in diastasis. We've got plenty of direct evidence of it in, say, you know, Achilles tendon rehab or patella tendon rehab or you know that kind of stuff. Uh, but we do have indirect evidence of it, which says that you know all abdominal strengthening, including transverse abdominus training, which which directly applies tension to the linear alba, improves diastasis. Right, so applying tension to the diastasis improves it. So I would say, I would make a case that we don't necessarily want to uh, or need to, you know, manage intra-abdominal pressure, um, you know, for people with diastasis. Um, yeah, but like I said, that's speculation. We don't have any direct you know, research on this, so I'm kind of going from a combination of first principles plus indirect evidence that um, all strengthening of the ab area seems to help. Great question. Uh, Sue asks, what about isometrics holds uh, during the half rollback unsupported? That seems to make it worse, but it can help if you add support behind the back like a ball. Is there any reason on that? Very different than a concentric and eccentric contraction. So uh, I don't know about, uh, I haven't seen research, Sue, on the, the pressure within the abdomen during an isometric hold in a curled up position versus a concentric eccentric. I've only seen research on the concentric eccentric, um, the pressure within the abdomen. So I, I can't comment on that. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I would say, uh, you know, with regard to your question, um, we say an isometric hold during a half rollback seems to make it worse. Now, I'm, I'm you know, jump in and into the chat and tell me if I'm mis- misunderstanding what you're saying here. But, uh, you know, when you say make it worse, I'm, I imagine what you mean is you see doming, right? You see a kind of a bulge appearing when someone does that. Uh, and I would challenge that and, and, and question, well, how do we know that means it's getting worse, right? We assume that bulging or doming is a bad thing. But like I said before in the presentation, based on zero evidence, we literally have not a single study on doming, right? So we don't know if doming is a good or bad thing. We don't know, uh, you know, if it's an indicator that someone's getting worse or getting better or neutral, right? We just we just don't know because no one's ever done any research on doming. However, hearkening back to first principles, right? If we think that you know the the, the linear alba is a tendon, which it is. Uh, and we know that to stiffen tendons, you need to apply load to the tendon, right? Well, what is doming? Doming, you know, bulging is where the, the tendon is under pressure. It's being pushed outwards, okay? It's being pulled on, right? Which is tension. Tension means to pull, right? To pull apart. So doming is, we in doming, we are actually applying load to the tendon, which is what you do to increase tendon stiffness. So I think there's a case to be made that doming is actually something good and is you know, a rehabilitative thing, right? So now there's also a case to be made for the opposite, which is that oh, maybe doming is stretching it more, right? And we literally have no research, like I said, but I think the, you know, to just assume that uh, if we see doming or bulging that we're making it worse, I think is unsupported. Um, and I would, uh, you know, given that, you know, in some of these studies we have on curl-up training, like I said, they're all bad quality for one reason or another, these studies on abdominal strengthening in pregnancy or postpartum, uh, and, you know, does it make diastasis better or worse? You know, in some of these studies, they specifically, you know, instructed the women to avoid doming. So they like limited their range of motion or, you know, whatever, managed breathing, et cetera, to, you know, so that they didn't do doming when they curled up. In other studies, they specifically didn't eliminate doming. So they just said curl up as far as you can curl up, right? And in other studies, they didn't specify anything about doming. They didn't mention, you know, when they talked about which exercise they did, they didn't mention whether they said anything about doming or not. So, but in all of those studies, we find that the diastasis got better after doing that exercise program. So whether they did doming or whether they didn't do doming or whether they didn't mention it, uh, so maybe in that study, some women domed and some women didn't or whatever, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't seem to have had any measurable impact on the outcome 
you know, in terms of the diastasis width. So I, I think uh, I would default, you know, to basically using what I would what's termed the null hypothesis, right? Which basically says that in science, anything, uh, you know, extraordinary, the, the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, or in, in other words, the 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 onus is on the person making the claim to provide evidence in support of that claim, right? Now, I would say that our default position in exercise, you know, for basically all of exercise and for exercising pregnancy and for exercise with diastasis should be that exercise is safe and beneficial, right? Every study we have on exercise for diastasis says it's safe and beneficial. So that should be our default assumption, right? Now, anybody making a claim that there's a particular exercise that's not safe or not beneficial, I think the onus is on that person making that claim to provide evidence that that is true, right? So our default assumption, I believe, should be that exercise is safe and good, right? And if any, if 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 anyone disagrees, I think that the obligation is on that person to provide evidence. And there is no evidence because we have no, <laughs> there is no evidence that exercise, abdominal curls or blaming or whatever, is not beneficial or, or is unsafe. So I would default to that. I would challenge the notion that um, you know doming is a bad thing. Uh, it's certainly an open question, you know. There's, uh, there is literally no literature on it, so we, you know, we'll find out at some future date, um, a year, a decade, or a hundred years from now, we'll find out uh, what's true. Uh, but at the moment, I believe we should assume that it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Anna says, uh, not so long ago, I followed a course of pre and postnatal in Pilates, and they suggested that women with hypertrophy in the abdominal muscles should avoid much abdominal work. What do you think about this? Uh, uh, Anna, I think it sounds like a load of crap. <laughs> um, uh, I think, uh, you know, having read pretty widely on this topic, like um, I've never heard of a study that looked at women with hypertrophy in the abdominal muscles and having worse outcomes. Like like I said, we've seen uh, exercise during pregnancy, specifically abdominal exercise during pregnancy uh, and after pregnancy, is associated with either no change to diastasis or improvement in diastasis. So I think that's a wholly unsupported claim. Uh, it's something someone made up. Uh, if there was, like, if I was, if I'm, if someone can show me a study that says that is a true thing, I'll certainly change my thinking. But uh, having looked at, I believe, you know, I mean, there are there are like three systematic reviews on this topic: the Surgeon General's report from the US from 2017, uh, and all of those systematic reviews uh, basically look at a totality of the literature on this topic. There's one uh, I quoted a little bit earlier was from Glup et al. 2020. That was a review of uh, abdominal exercises postpartum, and they found that, you know, curl-ups are safe and beneficial. Uh, and there is and there is another systematic review uh, from for prenatal exercise from, and I'm going to butcher this name, it's a Polish name, Grzynska. There's just too many consonants and not enough vowels uh, in that Name, but et al. 2018, Exercises for Pregnant and Postpartum Women with Diastasis Recti Abdominis Literature Review uh, from 2018. Um, they found, quote, there is not currently a gold standard method for treating diastasis recti abdominis. However, abdominal exercises during pregnancy reduce the risk of this condition postpartum, end quote. Right, so that is they looked at the totality of the literature on this topic. So that's the prenatal, and then the postnatal one I mentioned before was the GLUP et al., which found that abdominal uh, curls and transverse abdominal training have low quality evidence that they improve diastasis. And then we've got the 2017 uh, U.S. General Surgeons Report, which is MOMAS et al., 2017, The General Surgeon's Perspective of Rectus Diastasis: A Systematic Review of Treatment Options. They found. Uh, quote, we must conclude that the currently available evidence does not describe the successful treatment of rectus diastasis after a physiotherapy training program, end quote. So they basically found there is no evidence that we can resolve diastasis uh, through exercise 
therapy. Um, so now in all of that, not a single mention that women should avoid abdominal exercise. Any women should avoid abdominal exercise. So I think uh, the the notion that women with hypertrophy in the abdominal muscles should avoid abdominal workouts is a bunch of crap. Uh, Susan says, how do we tell the difference between its tendon doming or a hernia? One of my gents says he tries to keep the bulge in and you can see it change. Uh, you, I don't think you can tell the difference uh, Susan, I think you'd need to have that hernia diagnosed by ultrasound, most likely. Uh, and to my knowledge, I've done a little bit of a search on uh, exercise for hernia, and I've been literally unable to find a single paper looking at exercise rehab for tendon uh, for hernia. So I believe that at the moment, um, you know, the only uh, the only viable option probably for people with a hernia is going to be surgery to repair the hernia. So uh, if, yeah, if you suspect a hernia, uh, I would just recommend that person off to a, uh, a physical therapist or a, a medical doctor to get an ultrasound diagnosis, whether it's a hernia or not. Uh, and if it is a hernia and if it's, if it's bothersome, for that person, like if it's causing, a, if it's painful or if it's, you know, limiting their ability to function or whatever, um, then, you know, uh, they could consider surgical repair of the hernia. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, in my view, uh, unfounded concern when we see someone's abdomen bulging when they do a, a curl up, yeah, we kind of assume that that's a bad thing and that's something to be avoided. Uh, and whereas often it's not associated with pain, it's not associated with reduced function, uh, it's not associated with, you know, reduced ability to, to contract the muscle. Uh, so, you know, if it's causing a problem, it's a problem. Uh, but if it's not causing a problem, it's not a problem in my view. All right. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of the questions. So I think that is the end of the podcast. Ah, no, there is one more question. Um, actually, there's two more questions from Anne. Hi, Anne. Uh, do you know the effect of abdominal, oblique abdominal work on the linear alba at the time of exercise? Now, I don't have, uh, I haven't seen any research on that. I don't think any has been done. Uh, because it is very, very hard <laughs> to do an isolated bilateral contraction of the obliques uh, it, without without rotating the torso. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm not aware of any research that's been done. Going from just the, the anatomy and the biomechanics of like the fiber orientation of those muscles, uh, the lower fibers of internal oblique run um, horizontally, so they'll pull laterally on the linear alba. Uh, so I would expect that they would, that the obliques would probably widen the interrectal distance during contraction, but I don't have any any evidence on that. Uh, Susan says, does does reduction of the interrectal distance mean there's a restoration of function? Uh, so not necessarily. Uh, so the research that we have on what women actually want when they have uh, diastasis is they uh, women are concerned about appearance, they're concerned about abdominal bloating and discomfort, and they're concerned about function, which means their ability to do functional tasks like you know pick up their kids and you know get the shopping out of the car and stuff like that. Uh, and so we can help women with all three of those things without necessarily eliminating the diastasis. Um, although exercise, especially abdominal exercise, probably will contribute to reducing the diastasis for most women. We don't have any evidence that it can eliminate diastasis, but we certainly can increase abdominal strength. We certainly can increase uh, women's ability to do you know, their daily activities. Um, and although uh, you know, we can't necessarily eliminate the diastasis, uh, we can often help people's uh, 
or alleviate people's concern about their appearance, because as I'm sure, dear listener, you know um, from personal experience that our self-perception of our of our appearance is often you know completely unrelated to our actual appearance. Like you know, we can look in the mirror one day and go, "Gee, I look fat today," and then the next day you don't look fat in the mirror. It's like, well, did you really lose ten kilos overnight, or do you just? psychologically see yourself a bit differently today or we have bad hair days you know we're like oh my hair looks terrible and then no one notices because it's like it's not actually the case that your hair looks terrible it's just the case that you think your hair looks terrible on that day Uh, or you've got a terrible huge big gazish on your nose and you think oh my goodness you know everybody's staring at me but nobody even notices so i think you know it's it's well documented that our self-perception of our appearance is largely unconnected to our actual appearance, you know, and this is goes to extreme in, in mental health con- conditions like uh, anorexia, for example. But even just mentally healthy people, I think there is some level of disconnect between our self perception of our appearance and our actual appearance. Uh, and so, one of the things we know that improves our self perception of our appearance is social support. Uh, and so, uh, to he- uh, and to so to help women feel better about their appearance, we can do what we can to decrease their diastasis, although you know, exercise has got very limited evidence that it can do that. Uh, so we shouldn't necessarily promise that we can do that. But I think just by providing a supportive environment and you know, ideally exercising with other women who have a similar situation, going on a similar journey, and you know, encouraging social interaction and support by things like having you know a tea station outside of your studio, you know, room so women can sit and chat with each other before or after class, uh, you know, providing opportunities for people to socialize and, you know, do partner work, partner stretches and things in ex- in class and, and what have you to, for people to actually engage with each other in a supportive way. This can, you know, significantly improve people's um, experience of their body image. Uh, so, and in just in terms of function, just like general strengthening um, will improve function. Uh, Sue says, just curious and no disrespect intended, how many actual clients have you had that have had diastasis? Any personal case studies that you've had success with resolving diastasis? Personally, has significant diastasis from 11 pound baby, taught half rollback 10 to 15 times a week and caused a spondy. After engaging the TA more in neutral and working supine spine twist, have built the integrative of the linear elbow back. Would love to discuss more if you have more case studies. Hey, Sue, uh, great question. No, no offense taken, no disrespect <laughs> taken. Uh, thanks for asking. So uh, I've probably worked with, I don't know, half a dozen clients with diastasis over the years. Uh, I have never had the experience of eliminating a diastasis through exercise and the research doesn't document such a thing happening either. We do know that on a statistical level, women who exercise more tend, you know, like, well, let me backtrack. We do know that the base rate is that diastasis resolves within a year for about two thirds of women, right? So at at full gestation, you know, some studies find up to 100% of women have diastasis by week 36 of gestation, um, and that is down to about 33% or 32% or something by 12 months postpartum. So just if left to their own devices, you know, most women, two thirds, the diastasis resolves just spontaneously, but for one third, it doesn't. Uh, and for those one third, so, so what we find is when we do exercise, you know, prenatal and postnatal, thanks Siri, when we do exercise prenatal and postnatally, what we find is those percentages improve, right? So the women who do exercise, the abdominal exercise have tend to, on average, have a narrower diastasis and tend to resolve more quickly than the women who don't. But we don't, once we get past that one year postpartum, we don't have a single documented incidents of diastasis resolving completely as a result of exercise. Um, now, that's not to say it's not possible, but just like no one's seen that happen yet. And I certainly haven't experienced that with any of my clients. Um, I would, uh, I would, you know, with, e- with equal curiosity and respect <laughs> with the question that, that you asked me, I would uh, curiously and respectfully, uh, Question some of the assumptions in your uh, in your experience there. So, for instance, you said uh, you um, taught half rollback ten to fifteen times a week and caused a spondy. Now, 
uh, I would question that. Um, uh, for a start, um, anterior shear on the uh, vertebrae tends to be increased in extension, not flexion. So that kind of doesn't make sense to me just from a biomechanical point of view, that half rollback would cause a spondy. Uh, secondly, uh, how do you know that the half rollback caused this caused the spondy? Like the only way that you could know that would be if you had, say, an X-ray that found no spondy, and then did half rollback a bunch of times, and then immediately did another X-ray and found that you had a spondy. So that would be the only way that we could be you know, fairly certain that the half rollback caused the spondy, but you know, I mean, I don't obviously I don't know your story, Sue, but typically what we find is that people are going along happy as Larry, no back pain, and then they get some back pain and they go and get an X-ray or an MRI or whatever, and they go, oh, there's a spondy, right? And then they think, okay, what did I do just before I got the back pain? I was doing half rollback, therefore the half rollback must have caused a spondy, because the assumption is that the spondy is causing the back pain, and the spondy only happened when the back pain started. But uh, we do find that uh, spondylolisthesis uh, is very common, or relatively common, sorry, it's probably a better word, uh, in pain-free people. So it could be the case that you actually had that spondylolisthesis for a decade or more, completely symptom-free, and then you know, did half rollback and got back pain and you know, et cetera. Um, And Sue, uh, Sue says, I did have the x-ray numb before and after diastasis was trying to resolve my abdomen issue. Uh, so I I interpret what you've said there, Sue, as you actually did have an x-ray before you uh, were teaching the half rollback. Um, okay, got it. Um, so again, though, I think uh, I still am skeptical because uh, in that time that you were teaching half rollback, Okay, um, 10 to 15 times a week. I'm sure other stuff was happening in your life as well. Um, and, you know, like you may have been sleeping differently or under a different amount of stress or, you know, doing other things physically, you know, that, you know, so there are so many variables. It's basically impossible to isolate, oh, you know, it was this one thing that caused it. Um, so, uh, you know, if you came to me and you had a spondylolisthesis and uh, you had leg symptoms, which is the thing that we're generally concerned about with spondylolisthesis, I would uh, work with you based on symptoms. I'd be guided by symptoms. Anything that made your symptoms worse, I would avoid. Anything that didn't make your symptoms worse, I would do. And anything that made your symptoms better, I would do more of. Uh, <laughs> so that's basically the approach I would take. Um, I don't know... Uh, I haven't seen any research on rotational exercises with diastasis, or um, I, I kind of have a vague memory. Maybe I've seen one study, but I honestly can't recall. I will look it up and include it in the show notes if I find such a study. So I can't really comment on uh, rotational exercises. But my default assumption would be uh, that they help, right? Because we know that curl ups probably help and transverse abdominus probably helps and planks probably help. So I was like, well, why would, why would twists be any different? All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for being part of this. I really appreciate your um, questions. I appreciate the dialogue. It's great to be here with you. Those of you out in the Pilates stratosphere listening to this on the, in the future, I hope the future is treating you well. And uh, I look forward to catching on the flip side. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. 
And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.